encourage you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28, Matthew, the first book in the New Testament, uh, chapter 28, the the last uh, chapter there in the first book of the New Testament. As you turn there, just kind of reminders to where we are as a church in our our teaching time. We've been going through, we're coming off of Christmas, so finishing up our our Christmas messages, and uh, we've been in the Pentateuch, and the last uh, chapter we were in was Genesis 17. And in Genesis 17, you have Abraham and the renewal of the covenant, the, the affirmation of the covenant, with the sign of circumcision given. And as we talked about that, there was a question that was asked that I kind of anticipated because I've had that question as well. And the question was, okay, what's the relationship between circumcision and baptism? And uh, several months ago, the elders and I, as, as we were talking about kind of future things to teach about. We, we talked about uh, the, the need to <clears throat> spend some time talking about baptism, and it kind of baptism in, in three, baptism in two other topics as, as well. We're going to talk about baptism and church membership and the Lord's Supper, so kind of three related topics that we're going to begin talking about this morning, spend the next few weeks talking about, and then in February we're going to return to our, our series in the Pentateuch and pick up where we left off. But again, Genesis 17, talking about circumcision and the, the, the relationship between circumcision and baptism. This seemed like a good time to kind of fit in some conversations as a church about baptism, uh, church membership, and the Lord's Supper. These are crucial things for us as a church to understand and agree on, and or at least understand where we can agree and where it's okay to disagree as, as believers and brothers and sisters in Christ. And so uh, we're going to begin kind of looking at Matthew 28, say a few things about that, and then uh, look at a lot of other passages this morning as well. So if you are able, uh, if you would stand with me as we read from Matthew 28, and I'll begin in verse 16 as the disciples come to our resurrected Lord. And here we are, Matthew chapter 28, uh, beginning in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always. To the end of the age. You may be seated. May God encourage us through the reading of his word uh, this morning. Let me, let me pray for us as we continue our, our time of worship together. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word here, and we pray that you would help us to understand it. We thank you for uh, the sign of baptism, and we pray that we as a church would be faithful as we think about baptisms, we think about being unified together as, as a church in uh, these things and and give us grace to pursue unity even when there's uh, differences of opinion or understanding and we pray for great joy in you we love you father and we pray these things in your son jesus's name amen well as we uh, talk here about uh, baptism this week and next there's a there's a lot to cover and as we think about how much there is to cover i'm just going to go ahead and uh 
dive into things this morning. I'm going to talk as, what I did first service, I, I talked as long as I could, and then when Mike started throwing things at me, we stopped, and so we'll probably uh, stop about the same part, uh, point this morning, and then pick up again next week, continuing to talk about uh, baptism. Well, in Matthew 28 here, uh, just a couple things that I, I want us to think about to kind of help shape our thinking as we dive into the topic of baptism. Jesus here comes to his disciples and he makes this very strong statement. He says that he has all authority, and with that authority, he designates his apostles with a task. He delegates them with a task, and that task is to make disciples. The primary responsibility that the apostles have is a responsibility of discipleship. They're to go into the nations and make disciples, followers of Jesus Christ. And the ministry that the disciples are given, the the 11 are given, is the same ministry that we as a church today have. Remember the passage that uh, Pastor Mike read earlier from Ephesians, I believe Ephesians chapter 2. It talks about Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone, and there's this foundation, and the foundation is the teaching of the apostles. And so the same ministry that the apostles have been given is a ministry that we as individuals and we corporately as a church have, and our primary ministry in life that God has given us is to make disciples. In other words, our lives should be oriented around this ministry of making disciples of the nations. No matter what individual spiritual gift God has given you, your passion, what you should be striving to do with your life is helping the church complete this task of making disciples of all nations, that all people would be worshipers of Christ. Think about our church purpose statement. We exist to glorify God as we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and prepare people to worship him forever. What is that? That's discipleship, making disciples of the nations so they can engage in worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's why we exist. And the first component of being obedient and following the Lord in discipleship is in this text what? It's being baptized. Baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So as we disciple the nations, the first step that a person takes in this this pathway of discipleship of the Lord Jesus Christ is baptism. Now, so far, I haven't said anything all that controversial. I think most Christians over the last 2,000 years of church history would agree with what I've said so far. And now, from this point forward, things get a little sticky, right? <laughs> because it's, it's one thing to say, okay, we all agree that our task is to, to baptize the nations, to engage in discipleship, falling out the Lord Jesus Christ, it begins with baptism. Now, the question is, how do we baptize? Who do we baptize? Who gets to baptize? What does baptism mean? Now, as we start talking about those things, differences emerge. In fact, what you find is that there are significant differences of opinion among people who would call themselves Christians about what baptism is. In fact, not only are there significant differences of opinion about baptism, there are significant differences of opinion about how significant of differences there are among Christians, right? (laughs) Not only do we disagree about what baptism is, we disagree about how much we disagree on those things. I was uh, in class one time at a uh, Southern Baptist institution, and uh, there was a Southern Baptist professor that was teaching, and and he was uh, talking about how he was about to go to the Southern Baptist Convention convention, and uh, one of the things that he was going to advocate was that the Southern Baptist Convention 
only send out missionaries who have been baptized in Southern Baptist churches. So in other words, if you were baptized at Bethany Community Church, a wonderful church, by the way, if you're uh, baptized here and you want to become a Southern Baptist missionary, this guy was saying that he believes you would have to be rebaptized in the Southern Baptist Church, which I thought was a little silly and mentioned that, perhaps. Um, now, I'm good to go. Uh, I was baptized in a Southern Baptist church. You know, Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm a Baptist of Baptists, so I'm, I'm covered. But uh, still, I think that was kind of a, a bad, bad, uh, bad move on his part. Erwin Lutzer says, uh, you don't have to be a Baptist to be saved, but why take a chance is uh, <laughs> Erwin Lutzer's uh, opinion. All that to say, there are significant differences of opinion about baptism and significant differences of opinion about how significant a difference of opinion we have. So there's a lot to think through. And, and what I hope, what I hope as we talk about these things is that you uh, capture the, my tone here. I hope that you, you capture that, and I hope my tone is just a very gentle tone. Understanding that many of the people that we have differences of opinion with are dear brothers and sisters in Christ, right? And so as we have these differences of opinion, I hope that we're very gentle in how we have them. You know, at Bethany Community Church, we're a church that has a, a very, what you might call, reformed understanding about so many aspects of, of Scripture. And so there are a lot of people who have come to our church from uh, different backgrounds, more Presbyterian backgrounds who are at our church. And so we have great uh, unity and in so many different areas when it comes to the area of baptism with some of our Presbyterian uh, brothers and sisters. We have some differences of opinion, and we have to figure out what we do with those things. How do we handle those differences of opinions? And we'll talk through that because even though we have differences of opinion at Bethany Community Church, we believe some things and we have to, as best as we're able to, uh, be obedient to the Lord in these areas. And I believe that each of us is going to stand before God and have to give an account uh, not only for what we believe, but how we believed it, right? And so hopefully uh, my tone with our Methodist friends, Presbyterian friends, uh, other denominations will be a very, uh, would be a, a very God-honoring, God-glorifying tone. But at the same time, we would be uh, very, uh, very confident and uh, forthright in what we believe Scripture teaches. Because as we try to be obedient to Jesus Christ in this instruction to make disciples, there are practical questions we have to answer to help people be what we believe is to be obedient in these areas. We're going to have to answer questions like who should be baptized and how should they be baptized and who should be doing the baptism and uh, should I ever be rebaptized? And so there are a lot of practical questions that we're going to have to think through as we go through this passage. And what's more, I'll just uh, admit with with you to you that over the last 15 years in pastoral ministry for me, I, I think I've grown in my understanding and, and have, have deepened some of my understanding of baptism. Even the last week, I think my understanding of baptism has, has deepened. So what we're going to do together is, is we're going to talk about three things this morning. We're going to talk about the truth that baptism is for believers, and what we're going to do there is talk about the, the meaning of baptism. We're going to see that baptism is for all believers. In other words, all believers have the responsibility to be obedient to the Lord in this area, and we're going to talk about that's that and what it means in relationship to church membership. And then finally, we're going to see not only is baptism for believers, not only is baptism for all believers, we're going to see that baptism is a sign for only believers. So baptism is a sign for believers, baptism is a sign for all believers, 
And baptism is a sign for only believers. And that last point, we'll talk about some of our distinctive beliefs here at Bethany. Uh, One more thing before I I jump into what we're going to be talking about in more detail this morning. Uh, There are several sources that have kind of shaped my thinking. And I want to kind of tell you some of the books that I've been reading because I probably won't remember to uh, give proper uh, recognition to these uh, different authors as as I speak. So just a couple books, and maybe you might want to look at some of these on your own. Uh, One book that's been kind of influential over the last few months is a book called Going Public. Going Public, Why Baptism is Required for Church Membership. And it's published by Nine Marks, and Nine Marks is just a a great organization with uh, dealing with a lot of resources for the church. That book is by Bobby Jameson. There's another book uh, that I've mentioned before. It's called Baptism in the Early Church, History, Theology, and Liturgy in the First Five Centuries. And it's a book that looks like it covers five centuries. It's, it's quite uh, substantial. And so if you're uh, having trouble sleeping some night and just want to look at all the references to baptism over the first five centuries of the church, uh, recommend that. It's by Everett Ferguson. Uh, there's also a chapter in Grudem's Systematic Theology on baptism. And then when it gets more specifically to some of the th- things that are Uh, Church Believes About Baptism and Who Should Be Baptized. There's a book called A Biblical Critique of Infant Baptism by a man named Matt Waymire that's been influential. And then as I've tried to understand our brothers and sisters who disagree with some of the things that I believe, I've read some uh, resources by uh, John Frame, uh, some articles by Greg Bonson, I listened to a sermon by a pastor named Joe Moorcraft. And so there's, there's several resources that can help us understand what our brothers and sisters in different denominations or backgrounds believe as well. But let's, let's jump into that. With all that said, here are three truths, and we won't get through all three of them this morning, but here are three truths that, that we believe about baptism here at Bethany Community Church. Number one, a baptism is a sign for believers. Baptism is a sign for believers. And so in this section, I want us to understand the meaning of baptism. What is it? And kind of two questions here as we think about baptism as a sign for believers. First question is, what is baptism? Okay, what is baptism? And that word baptism is from the Greek word baptizo. And that Greek word means to immerse or to dip or to plunge. It could also kind of take on in early literature kind of a metaphorical idea of being overwhelmed by something or it was also used to refer to the process of dyeing a cloth. You, you submerged, you dipped that cloth in the, the liquid, and so that was you know, the dyeing. Baptizo could also refer to that. But that Greek word essentially meant to, to submerge or to immerse in some sort of substance, usually liquid, usually some sort of, of water-type substance. And that's what the word literally meant. Now, what is baptism? How would we define it for a Christian? What is baptism? Here's the definition that I'd like to, to give you, and this will be in your notes next week. We didn't have time to put in the notes this week with the uh, holiday schedule. But here's, here's the definition from uh, Bobby Jameson's book. Here's, here's the definition. Baptism is a public profession of faith and repentance, which signifies cleansing, forgiveness, uh, union with Christ, new life in Christ, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and the new creation. That's kind of a definition of baptism. Baptism is a public profession of faith and repentance, which signifies cleansing, forgiveness, union with Christ, new life in Christ, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and the new creation. Now, if you look at that definition, you might think, okay, Daniel, um, 
can you make it a little bit shorter? Not enough space to write it all down here. Here's, here's, a, here's a simpler way to understand it. If you look at that definition, you see really there's two main things happening there, right? Two main things. There's an idea of profession and an idea of a sign, signifying. And you could simplify it by saying this. A baptism is a profession of and a sign of our union with Christ. Baptism is a profession of our union with Christ, and it's a sign of our union with Christ. What does it mean that it's a profession of our union with Christ? Well, think about what's happening in Acts chapter 2 as, as Peter encourages his audience to be baptized. Now, Jesus Christ has just been crucified, and he's, he's risen from the dead, and he's left these instructions with his disciples to baptize people in the, the, this Trinitarian formula, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so Peter tells people they need to be baptized. And what happens? As people respond to the gospel message and are baptized, what are they doing? They're professing in the midst of a culture that has is, that is just crucified Jesus Christ. They are professing their union with him. It's this declaration that they are Christians. So baptism, even today, is a profession. I'm, I'm united with Christ. I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm a believer. I'm part of the church. It's us professing our faith. And that's why Jameson uses the title in the book, Going Public. How does a person know that you're a Christian? You, you're baptized. You profess your faith. So it's a profession. Baptism is a profession. But it's also this, this sign. It's a sign. Now, now what is a sign? A sign is an object that, that points to something else, that has some other meaning. So, for example, if I were to come to my wife and were get, to give her a flower and to say to her, my love, my darling, the soul of my life, uh, this, this is a flower, this flower for you is a, a sign of my affection for you. The flower itself wouldn't be my love, right? The flower is a, a sign of my love. It symbolizes it. It points to it. You're driving in your car and you see this this red thing on the side of the road, octagon shaped, and the word stop is on it. It's a stop sign. It's telling you this is what you need to do. That that sign itself doesn't force your car to stop, but it's a, a sign that you should stop your car, not roll your car or slow down your car. It's a stop sign. Maybe this has happened to you before too, but I've I've been sometimes in another country driving my car, and I'll see some as I'm driving along, see some sign, and I have no idea what that sign means. Maybe it means to speed up, so speed up, right? No idea what the sign, unless you know what the sign is pointing to. The sign doesn't have meaning, and so sometimes what I think happens, even in the church. As we hear people's, we come in this room, we hear people's testimonies about their faith in Jesus Christ, and we walk over to the, the awesome facility that God has provided us here, and we have this public profession of faith in Christ, and we watch people go down in the water and come back up, but we're like, I know it means some things, but I'm not sure what that's a sign of. So let, let's spend a few minutes talking about what it is a sign of, and just a couple of things here in Jameis' definition that I think are, are really helpful. First of all, it's a sign of forgiveness and cleansing, right? It's a sign of forgiveness and cleansing. Listen to what Paul says that Ananias told him. Paul's quoting Ananias in Acts 22. And Ananias said to Paul, Why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Wash away your sins, calling on his name. 
Hebrews chapter 10 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, excuse me, a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that baptism itself is washing away our sins? No, it's, it's a sign of what has taken place through our faith in Jesus Christ. Now, if there are one area where I think we really struggle to understand rightly what's happening at, at baptism, th- this might be it. Uh, sometimes I've been talking with people about their profession of faith in Christ, and we're talking about their, their walk with the Lord and say, well, I, I've become a Christian now. I want to be baptized so that my sins will be washed away. I'm really looking forward to having my sins washed away as we're baptized. And I think, okay, that's a wrong understanding of what's taking place in the act of baptism. But it's a very popular idea that when I go in the water, it's washing away my sins. There's a, a movie uh, set in the uh, Depression era in Mississippi. It's called Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And it's kind of a, a comedy, and there's this character named Delmer. And Delmer's a, a dim-witted country boy, and he sees a bunch of group of people being baptized, and so he joins in, and he comes out of the water, and he comes to his, his compatriots, these, these criminals that he's been traveling around with, and Delmer says to his, his friends, this, this country boy says, well, that's it, boys. I've been redeemed. The preacher's done washed away all my sins and transgressions. It's a straight and narrow from here on out. Heaven's my everlasting reward. And his friend says, Delmer, what are you talking about? And Delmer says, the preacher says, all my sins is washed away, including that piggly wiggly I knocked over in Yazo. And his friend says, I thought you said you were innocent. Delmer pauses. Well, I was lying. Well, I was lying. And the preacher says that sin's been washed away too. Neither God nor man's got nothing on me now. Come on in, boys. The water's fine, says Delmer. Right? In other words, God can't touch me. I went down the water. I came back up. My sins are washed away. I'm good to go. But that's not right, is it? Okay. Baptism isn't what causes our sin. Physical baptism, Peter's very clear on this, doesn't cause our sins to be washed away. It's a physical sign revealing what's taking place spiritually, right? I assure you, uh, I've, I've baptized, uh, by God's grace, uh, many of you, and there is nothing magical that I did when we went down into that five points water. And I, I assure you of this, too, there's nothing magical about the five points water. Um, you know, that pool gets shut down every so often because of contaminants, okay? And they do a great, uh, they do a great job cleaning it, but there's nothing magical about that water, no, what's happening? What's happening? It's, it's a sign of what God in his grace has done by washing away sin. It's also a sign of our union with Christ, death, burial, and resurrection. We see that in the definition too, right? And I, I love this picture, and you see this so often as Paul talks about baptism. So, for example, Romans 6, you see how he kind of brings physical and spiritual baptism together. He says, don't you know, this is Romans 6, 3, Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. As we're baptized, it's a sign of what's taking place there. Galatians 3, verse 25, But 
now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, as were baptized into Christ, you've put on Christ. You say, well, now, is Paul talking there about spiritual baptism or physical baptism? And I think for Paul, the distinction would not have been as, as stark as it is in our mind. You ask Paul, what about the person who's not been baptized physically? He'd say, what are, what are you talking about? What Christian would not have been baptized physically? Colossians 2, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. He's talking there about the spiritual reality behind that sign. By, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ and having been buried with him in baptism. And again, it's a, a spiritual baptism being described, the physical baptism represents, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And I believe, as we think about this idea, that baptism is a sign for believers, and one of the signs is our union with Christ. This is a, a crucial picture we cannot understand sanctification. We can't understand the Christian life without understanding how we've been united with Christ. And if we look at baptism carefully, we're reminded every time we see baptism about this reality of being united with Christ. It's also a sign of what we see here of a new life in Christ. And Romans 6.13 says, Don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Paul says in Ephesians 2, says that we've been raised up with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places in, in Christ Jesus. We have been united with Christ. We've, we see this, this new life in Christ. Whenever many years ago, I was at Bethany Baptist Church and Pastor Rich was preaching through the book of Colossians. Maybe some of you were, were there at that time as well. And we came to Colossians chapter 3 and uh, Pastor Rich encouraged us all to, to memorize Colossians chapter 3, and, and our family did it, and it was just so influential in thinking about this reality. And this part of baptism symbolizes this entirely new relationship you and I have with sin. Listen to Paul in Colossians 3 as he begins the chapter. He says, If then you've been raised with Christ, and that's true for believers, uh, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Why? For you have died. Your life is, is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. What do we see there? I've been united with Christ. And every time I see a baptism, I should be reminded of that, of that sign that I am now a, I've been united with Christ. I'm now a new creature. And if it is true that I'm a, a new creature, my life should reflect that. And as I see people baptized, professing their faith in Jesus Christ and their repentance from sin, and I look at my own life and say, there is no difference in me now than there, were, than there was before confession, then what does that mean? It means that my life does not match the profession that I made at baptism, and there's something very seriously wrong that I need to think through. It's a sign also, baptism is, of the gift of the Holy Spirit. First. Corinthians 12, verse 13, in one spirit we are all baptized into one body. Jews, Greeks, slaves, free, all were made to drink of one spirit. And finally, there's more we could say here about what baptism signifies, but 
Another sign of baptism here is that, that, we're, new, that we're a new creation in Christ. Romans 6, 5, again, if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. 2 Corinthians five seventeen. if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So first question, what is baptism? As we think of baptism as a sign for believers, the first question, what is baptism? It's a public profession of faith and repentance that signifies our, our cleansing, forgiveness, union with Christ, new life in Christ, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and our new creation. So that's what baptism is. Now, as we also think about baptism as a sign for believers, what, is, what does it do? What, what happens when I'm baptized? What's, what does it do? Well, first of all, it identifies me as a Christian, right? Baptism identifies me to the world as a Christian. In fact, this is such a, a crucial identifier, baptism is, that sometimes it's used uh, synonymously with uh, conversion. We'll talk more about that in a moment. It also, as I identify myself as a Christian of the world, as I'm baptized, it unites me with Christ's church. Baptism unites me with Christ's church. Becoming a Christian isn't some private thing that I do just in the quietness of my own heart and then kind of keep it there. Becoming a Christian is something I do that has ramifications for the entire body of Christ. And as I'm baptized, I'm publicly professing that I'm a Christian, that I'm a part of the body of Christ. So baptism is a sign for believers, a profession of, a sign of my union with Christ. Now there's lots of practical questions here. So for example, what sort of mode of baptism do we use? And at Bethany Community Church, we believe that the mode of baptism, that the, the w- mode of baptism basically means how much water do I use? Um, we believe that the mode of baptism that best symbolizes what is taking place here is immersion, is going down into the water, coming back up out of the water, we believe that best signifies what baptism is. And we, we believe that that's what Scripture is describing. We see uh, people going down into the water in Scriptures. For example, the Ethiopian eunuch and um, uh, Philip as they go down into the water. We also, as we look at the first a few centuries of church history, it seems like uh, the early church was practicing immersion as a type of baptism. That's the type of baptism that Jews at the time were practicing as well. And so it seems like that is the mode of baptism that best exemplifies what baptism is. Another question we think about, well, can I still be a, a Christian without baptism? In other words, you're saying it's important how I publicly identify myself with Christ, but can't I be a Christian and not be baptized? And my answer to that would be yes. Like the, and I'd say it like that too. Yes. In fact, it's interesting, one person writes this, well, baptism doesn't save anybody since the thief on the cross went to heaven without it and Simon the magician went to hell with it. Okay, so baptism isn't what saves us. And yet at the same time, as we're going to see in this next section, a person who's a believer who refuses to get baptized or isn't baptized needs to very carefully think about the genuineness of their, their faith. So that brings us to the second thing. Baptism is a sign for believers. Number two, baptism is a sign for all believers. Okay, baptism is a sign for all believers. And I want us to think here about obedience in this area of baptism and its relationship to membership in Christ's church. 
whenever Scripture asks the question, who is a member of the church, the answer that Scripture often gives is, well, those who are baptized. You want to know who's a Christian? Look at the people who are baptized. Those are the people who are Christians. That's how Scripture often answers that question. Now, kind of two main things to think about here. Number one, all believers were commanded to be baptized, explicitly in Scripture, commanded to be baptized. For example, here in Matthew 28, we see this instruction given. People are to be, being making, they're to be making disciples. What's the first step of discipleship? It's being baptized. Now, keep your finger there in Matthew, because there's a couple other passages in Matthew I want us to get to this morning. But uh, turn over to the book of Acts, and turn to Acts chapter 2. There's a passage in Acts chapter 2 which is uh, very powerful as we think about the importance of baptism and how baptism is for all believers. So Acts chapter 2, keeping your finger there in Matthew, and Peter's giving this, this sermon. He's talking to the, the Jewish people who have had Christ crucified. And he stands with the other apostles and he lifts up his voice and he, he begins to, to share the gospel with them. He comes to verse 22 and he says, he's been talking about the Christ, and he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Then he comes down to verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And so uh, he's presenting the gospel to them. He's describing who Jesus is. And the Jews, as they realize what they've done, realize they've made a big mistake. A mistake with eternal consequences. And they say, we're toast. We've been waiting for the Messiah. He came. We crucified him. What salvation is possible for us? Verse 37, brothers, what shall we do? They're asking the 12, okay, we killed the Messiah. Now what do we do? And listen to what Peter responds in verse 38. And let's not minimize what he says. Repent and be baptized. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he says here to the Jewish people, this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Expanding this, expanding this, this, this promise. So what does it mean there at the beginning about repenting, being baptized, and having sins forgiven? Some say, well, the forgiveness of sins is just in relationship to repentance. Repent, and your sins are forgiven, and, oh, by the way, you also need to be baptized. Or everyone who repents also needs to get baptized, and those people will have their sins forgiven. But I, I think Peter is saying more here. Now, stay with me, because um, th- there's a lot here. Remember where they are. They're there in Jerusalem. They've, they've just crucified Christ with the approval of the Roman government. And he's saying you need to, to trust in Jesus Christ and you need to be baptized. In other words, you need to make a public profession of faith in Jesus Christ, of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And 
If you're going to make Jesus, if you're going to truly place your faith in Jesus Christ and make him your, your Lord and Savior, there's going to be, need to be a public component to that. It's similar to what we see in, in Romans, right? Romans chapter 10, what does Paul say about salvation? He says, it says, if you confess with your mouth, this is Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. In other words, a person who genuinely trusts in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior is going to have a, a public response of that. There's going to be public confession. So, does the act of baptism forgive anyone of their sins? No. But here's, again, a very important theological question, and, and um, stay with me because I'm going to say something, and by the time I get to the end of what I'm saying, it won't be heretical, but it might sound heretical at first. <laughs> Let's say that you're there in Acts chapter 2. You're part of the audience. And Peter says, repent and, and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus uh, to, to be saved, forgiveness of sins. And what, what happens if you say this? What if you're in the audience and you say this, uh, you know what? I think I'm just going to do the sinner's prayer and keep it to myself. Are you saved? You hear Peter say, repent, turn from your sins, place your faith in Christ, be baptized in his name for the forgiveness of your sins. What happens if you're there and you say, you know what? I'm just going to close my eyes, quietness my own heart, make this profession. I would argue, based on what Peter's saying here, that that's not genuine faith. You're not saved. I believe that the true heart of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ here in Acts chapter 2 is going to respond by, by professing Christ publicly, by, by being baptized. A person who hears this, this, this instruction says, okay, I'll make Jesus Christ Lord of my life, but the first thing that I'm going to do is disobey him, <laughs> isn't a person who's truly understanding what it means that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. Is it possible for a person to be a Christian and refuse to be baptized. I would carefully say yes and no. If a person hears the fullness of the gospel, understands the need to be obedient, and, and the first thing they do is to say no, I, I, boy, I don't know if you've really understood the gospel. Is it possible that a person doesn't understand the, the fullness of Jesus' instruction and there's a time of, of delay? I think that is possible, but, but what I would just, as of today, those who are believers should understand, look, baptism is important. All believers are commanded to be baptized. Jesus commands it. Peter commands it. The profession of faith in Jesus Christ is something that every believer is to do. And the way that Christ says we are to publicly identify ourselves with Christ is through baptism. So that's the first thing. Baptism is for all believers. It's for all believers because all believers are commanded. But secondly... It's for all believers because baptism identifies who is a part of the church and who is not a part of the church. And this, uh, brothers and sisters, is always also very important. And turn back to Matthew, and there are two passages that I want us to look to, together at in Matthew. And the first is in Matthew 16. So turn back to Matthew 16 with me, if you would. And uh, this is, uh, again, this is very very hard things to grasp, and I, I think we don't understand the fullness of the authority of the church. And when I say the authority of the church, I don't mean the authority of uh, 
the pastor who preaches on Sunday. I don't mean the authority of the elders. I don't mean just the authorities of the deacons or uh, the authority of the Sunday. I mean the authority of the body, the authority that Bethany Community Church as a, as a body of Christ, the authority that God has given to it. I, given to it. I, I don't think we fully understand it. But listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 16. You come to Matthew 16, 13. And Jesus is in the district of Caesarea Philippi, and he asks his disciples, who do the people say that I am? And they give these different answers. He says, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah. Jesus says, that's right. And he comes to verse 18, and he says it's the Father who revealed it. Then he says in verse 18, and I tell you, this is Matthew 16, 18, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and there's a lot of discussion about what that rock is. Essentially, you could say that it's, it's this profession, it's, it's a person, Jesus Christ, it's a profession that, that he's the Messiah, it's that truth. And on this truth, my authority as Christ, as Messiah, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, here's what we need to understand. When Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail against it, the it there isn't just us as individual believers. I can't say, you know what, uh, I'm, I'm strong in my faith, and the gates of hell themselves won't prevail against me. That's not the promise that we have in Scripture. What institution is given the promise that the gates of hell won't prevail against it? It's the, it's the church, collectively as a body. I don't have authority in and of myself apart from the church to say anything. He says, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will give to you, and that's not us as individuals or even Peter as an individual, the kings of the kingdom of heaven. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ, that he was the Messiah. What is Jesus saying? He is saying that the church has tremendous authority. The church has the authority on earth to declare what is true in heaven. The church has the authority to say who is and who is not part of the kingdom of God, as we do so in submission to what God has revealed to the church. In other words, I don't have the authority just to myself to say, you're in, out, borderline, in, out, out. I don't have that authority. As a church, as a body of Christ, we come to Scripture and we, we together collectively say, hey, this is what it means to be a part of the family of Christ. You're in. Matthew 18, turn over to Matthew 18. We see the seriousness of the responsibility the church has. Don't, don't miss this. This is going to be important as we talk about church membership too. It says, if your brother sins against you, this is Matthew 18, 15. He begins to talk about how to respond to a brother who sins against you. And then he says, if this brother refuses to listen to you and to the two or three witnesses who come along with you, he says in verse 17, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now, do you see the tremendous importance on the authority of the church? The church has the authority collectively to say who and who is not part of the family of God. What this means is as an individual, I can't exist apart from the church saying, I think God and I are good. I think God and I are okay. Why do I think that? I just do. I just kind of feel it. 
And my friend says that he thinks I'm okay too. What it means is that I have the responsibility to be plugged in to other brothers and sisters in Christ who as I'm accountable to them, they assure me that I am walking with the Lord or they correct me when I need to be corrected. Do you see the tremendous authority that the church has? It's not an intrinsic authority. It's a derived, God gives it the authority. It's like a school guidance counselor. You know, we're at the stage of life where we're having kids in our high school and we're trying to okay, how do they make sure they have all the right credits to graduate and the right credits they need for, for college. And the school guidance counselor, she comes alongside and she says, okay, here's, here are the requirements for, for being a high school graduate. Here's how you get the diploma. And that, that school guidance counselor in and of herself doesn't have authority. It's derived authority, but we listen to her so we understand how do we, how do we make sure we have all the things we need to have our, our children accredited. It's a derived authority, not intrinsic. The church, by God's grace, has been given the authority to say, here's, here's who's in, here's who's out. Now, how does that relate to baptism? The, the means by which the church says who is and is not part of the church, who is and who is not part of the kingdom of God, is through baptism. That's how it begins. Baptism is the moment at which I identify myself publicly with the body of Christ and profess my faith in Christ. The being baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is is like an oath swearing of citizenship in the kingdom. The church administers it, and you become a member of the visible church through baptism. It marks who is in and who is out of the family of God. It's a defining moment. Now, there's there's a lot more that we could say there, but but we're out of of time now, and we're going to pick up there next week and talk about some of the implications of that. But let let me just very gently and lovingly say this, okay? If you've not been baptized, you haven't identified yourself publicly as a Christian in the way that Scripture prescribes for you to do so. If you haven't been baptized, you haven't publicly identified yourself as a Christian in the way that Scripture instructs you to. And it's disobedience, right? And if you have been baptized, you understand, I hope, what you've done. And as we're baptized... And as we think about that sign of baptism, not only is it not just a profession, but it's a sign, a sign of our union with Christ, a sign of our new creation in Christ, a sign of our cleansing from sin, forgiveness of sin. We need to continually ask ourselves, is, is my life that I'm living now reflective of what I say has taken place in me spiritually? Now again, let me just be very, very clear. How does a person come into relationship with Jesus Christ? How does a person come into relationship with God? Through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. As I, come, as I hear the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, I say, I believe that to be true. I'm repenting of my sin. I'm placing my faith in Jesus Christ alone for my salvation, making him Lord and Savior, acknowledging him as Lord and Savior. But as I do that, one of the first things that, that I should do in my walk of discipleship in his name is to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, publicly professing my faith in Christ and signifying what has taken place in me spiritually. Baptism is for a sign for believers. It's a sign for all believers. It's a sign, we'll talk about next week, very graciously for only believers. Let's pray.
And Heavenly Father, we do pray that you'd help us to rightly live out our profession of faith in your Son, Jesus. We pray that you'd give us the ability to do so uh, through your, through your uh, Spirit living in us, acting in us, and that we'd be submissive uh, to you. We pray that you would help uh, us to be gracious in our lives. We pray for this morning for those uh, in our body, those who have been united with us uh, through faith in your Son, Jesus. We pray for those who are hurting. And, and Father, there are just so many this, this weekend who are struggling with so many different things. We pray for your special grace on them. And we pray that they would receive a comfort from you with which they can comfort others. And help them to rely not upon themselves, but upon your Son and upon uh, you who raised Jesus from the dead and can do the same for us and will in the time of the resurrection. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.